You're listening to the live coverage of the Alaska Federation of Natives Convention. I'm your host, Bob Peterson, and joining me from KMBA, Trip Kraus and independent producer Emily Schwing. It's been a busy couple days here at AFN. Uh, let's bring you up to date on what's been happening. Right. Yeah, it's been a very busy uh, week. We had elders and youth um, first until Wednesday. We had a meeting of the National Congress of American Indians on Wednesday, and now here we are on the second day of AFN. Um, and uh, we did manage to catch up with um, Tara Sweeney, Assistant Secretary for Indian Affairs, both at the National Congress of American Indians meeting on Wednesday here in Fairbanks and then again yesterday. Um, and she was here to talk about a lot of issues. We did manage to ask her about climate change, resource development, and land conservation. But we also talked to her about um, public safety and um, abuse and murdered and missing indigenous people. And um, that seems to have been um, a major, it made up a major portion of the discussion all of yesterday afternoon into this morning. And even when we walk around here on the floor, we're hearing it. Um, One of the reasons that's so important is uh, it brings visibility to an invisible culture uh, that we feel that the Native Americans, Native Alaskans have been for so long. And now uh, we're trying to raise awareness to that fact. And so you had a moment to talk with Tara. I, I actually talked to her yeah. yesterday. I talked to Tara after she spoke the the main stage here at AFN. And she, I was asking the question and my immediate gut question was talking about missing and murdered indigenous women. And she was quick to uh, correct me on that. When you hear me talking about missing and murdered, it will be missing and murdered Native Americans uh, because uh, MMIW represents a segment of our community. And as we began this process of engaging uh, Indian country and Alaska Native communities, uh, I was reminded that it's not only women who are victims, it is our children and our men, and it's not only Indian country, but Alaska Native communities and Native Hawaiians. And so uh, when I talk about the missing and murdered epidemic in our communities, it will be under the umbrella of Native Americans. That's a a very important distinction to make, and I'm glad that Tara was able to point that out. And something that's not in that clip, too, she was really quick to talk about the the designation of Indian country, but when she's talking about missing and murdered indigenous people, she's talking about Alaska Natives as well and Native Hawaiians. Absolutely. Just engaging stuff. And it really stands out to me, you know, um, I... We've all been covering AFN for many years, and it just seems like the volume on this conversation about um, murdered and missing indigenous people, um, sexual abuse and violence, misconduct, um, public safety, like that knob just gets turned up a little bit more every year. There were years that we never heard this kind of stuff spoken about openly on the floor and then also on the stage by leadership. but where I believe this really broke open was in 2013 when we were here in Fairbanks and seven kids from Tanana, um, a small interior village, um, stood on the same stage we're looking at now and got up and talked about um, you know, what was going on in their village. And we actually have tape from 2013. I'm here to help those who hurt like I hurt. Male, female, young, old, 
gay or straight. We all her no more. I'm not here because I hate my family. I love my family to the moon and back. That's why I'm here. Well, here for the future of my little cousins and my children I'll have in the future. Break the silence. No more violence. It's emotional, mental, or physical. Rape and molestation stops today. This uh, visibility of these terrible things that are happening to our youth, to our women, to all people is something which has been taboo to talk about in the past. And uh, on the day one of AFN in the afternoon session, it was brought up uh, no more. We need to have a higher accountability and the ability to uh, call out problematic behavior while not shutting out the individual because uh, that's one of the cultural items is like we cannot dismiss an individual and because they're not defined by an action but we are starting to call out those actions yeah there's there's been a lot of calls um over the years for calling out people who um you know commit acts of violence commit crimes in in rural alaska um engage in abuse um but one of the voices that we haven't heard from um, until yesterday, <laughs> until until Thursday afternoon on the on the floor was um, was the the male voice in the Alaska Native community, um, and and you know what happens to um, survivors of abuse who are men, and so we did um, get to talk. Well, later I talked with a man. His name's Wally Gust. He's from New Stuyahawk. And he did get up and speak before a couple hundred people about his experience. And we speak of women being hurt by men. I'm coming out of my comfort zone to say it. What about us men who've been hurt when we were younger? Yeah. Don't you think that's the driving force of what we've become, us men. I, I know I'm not the only man that's been hurt by an older person, you know? I know I've been hurt physically. That's easy to talk about. But what I'm getting at is the sexual stuff. You know, I've been hurt. And I've carried this on because I've been told not to talk about it. And I thank you, I commend you that even us men have to come out and start working together if we're going to help our youth. The ability to share your voice and your experiences is something that brings us together. Silencing a voice, regardless of wherever it comes from, is something that doesn't help expand, it diminishes. And we're starting to see the fruits of this uh, open discussion of some very difficult and terrible things and again how healing and inspiring it is and unifying of the people coming together yeah I this um, to me this this moment very much stood out it was one of those AFN moments that I think you know we're talking about the Tanana kids six years later I think we'll be talking about Nustuya Hawks Wally Gust six years from now um, the courage he had to get up in front of all these people and, and speak like that. I did manage to, to grab him afterwards and sort of pick his brain. This was not planned. 
Um, I talked to some other leadership with AFN. Um, Co-chair Will Mayo told me yesterday he thought that this testimony was groundbreaking. Um, and so we're starting to see these conversations come to the forefront, forefront and um, to break open. Um, and so we'll see where it goes from here. Very excited to see the healing that'll happen. Yeah, and you talked about visibility earlier and representation. And one of the things that's happened uh, since last year, actually, elders and youth started using, they would divide people into houses. And so there was a men's house and there was a woman's house. And last year, I believe, was the first time that they started creating a LGBTQ and two-spirit house for people to be able to go into and have a discussion. And so you're able to have younger people who maybe are a little bit more aware, conscious, and maybe a little bit more proud of who they are. And you have some elders who probably also have some of those feelings and have that dialogue and create that discussion back and forth on that. You're seeing a lot in the lower 48 where LGBTQ natives uh, sometimes are referred to, and I affectionately refer to myself as an indigiqueer. Uh, th those conversations are happening and it's creating a space for people to be able to come out, have healing, have a community, and have that support that's so desperately needed in a lot of Indian country and Alaska native communities. So creating spaces for that allows for those dialogues to happen and that healing to begin and to recognize how a lot of these concepts of like a gender binary being man or woman, there are a lot of tribes in the lower 48 and I speculate that there were a lot of people in Alaska before colonization and um, churches came in and started putting um, rules in place that there were probably a lot more people who identify that the way they are, we're just seeing it more. And so this concept of being new is, is probably not accurate. It's probably been something that's been going throughout the indigenous community for thousands of years. Well, individuality doesn't have a time frame nor a time space. And it's something in which uh, native communities uh, do have in common is that a artificial time place and time reference has been placed on there. Uh, and that's something that in which we're emerging from uh, within the native community, uh, reclaiming languages, reclaiming identity, reclaiming culture in the, in the ability to handle difficult situations and also with uh, different governments uh, that's going on. And that's one of the beauties of uh, AFN. You are listening to the live coverage of the Alaska Federation of Natives Convention. Uh, we'd like to say a special thank you to our listeners tuned in throughout the state in KOTZ Kotzebue, KYUK Bethel, KZPA in Fort Yukon, and KRFF in Fairbanks, Alaska. And so, Emily, uh, what were some of the other insights and things that are happening that you that have been going on? You know, I really think that y this idea of reclaiming is very interesting and, and like bringing attention to. And one of the things that we've been looking at for two days is this giant um, cusbuck with all these women's faces drawn on it um, with Sharpie. And um, that was created by uh, Alaska Native artist Amber Webb. Um, Information. <laughs> right, right. And, um, you know, she kind of gave us her sense of, of this cusbuck's been showing up for, what, two or three years now, yeah. Trip. Um, and you were able to catch up with her and talk to her a little bit about it. Yeah, and if you haven't seen it before, I'm really in awe whenever I see this thing. This thing is massive. It's 12 it's foot huge, tall. Yeah. <laughs> and the portraits on this thing are life-size. So you are literally looking at the faces of 200 and some 
indigenous people who have gone missing or murdered. And one of the things that when I was talking with Amber about is making sure that trans women, transgender people sort of get that same recognition. And I talked a little bit about that with her. What I've seen a big part of that identity is being accepted as a woman and I don't want to single them out on the project because I want them to just be a part of this woman womanhood that that we all experience and I I don't know if I'm going about that the right way but they're just on there they're on there there's there's only two right now but there's a couple of more in the works I don't I don't separate that I don't draw a line between like because as far as I'm concerned they're women, I'm a woman, the rest of the women on there are women, and that's how I see it. So. Yeah, that's again, again another beautiful perspective on inclusion, and uh, inclusion just doesn't mean, oh, uh, you're going to be allowed to sit at the table in the corner. It's no, you are included, you are a part, you are seen. Yeah, and, and Amber was really clear about the having the space where the cuspuck is, is holding that space for the missing and murdered people who are on it, giving them a sense of presence almost, and we had a really nice long conversation about it and it was really great. It's like inviting those spirits back in and making them a part of the community and giving them that visibility. Not forgotten. Yeah. She, you know, she also talked to you, Trip, about um, the more serious side of the numbers of indigenous people that are going missing and are murdered and, you know, cold cases that aren't, solved um and um she mentioned that uh, she used the word genocide which i think is really strong language like the entire issue is it's ongoing genocide it's ongoing genocide and if it's really hard to try to go about healing that rift in a way that doesn't further separate people when sometimes it feels like you can't tell the whole truth and have people accept it, but you need to tell the whole truth, and that is the truth. You know, our women are dying of racism, uh, and then they're further like having to suffer that indignity after they die and it's it's with these two recent cases I feel like within a group consciousness in the state like a resounding like heartbreak I can't quite I don't know how to describe it it's like spiritually we're we're tired we're tired of defending our women we're tired of asking people to us for as people and then tired of navigating microaggressions and you know that idea of genocide you know we've seen Canada declare um, you know use the language genocide to describe what has happened to um, First Nations people in Canada and I wonder if that's not where this conversation is going and I would not be surprised to you know, see a, organizations like AFN 
start to use that language to describe what's going on with Alaska Native people, what has gone on with Alaska Native people in a more formal way in the future. Well, it certainly highlights the rawness and the emotion that happens with such traumatic events like this. I mean, uh, uh, National Native News did a story on uh, the Nome uh, lack of action on their own populace of Native women uh, being assaulted, being murdered, and not a follow-up uh, by the police department there, nor the city. And uh, what Amber was saying there is just feeling tired, feeling disheartened is is uh, on top of the mourning and the grief and the hurt. Uh, certainly is a taxing and very wearing emotion to keep going. Um, and then the reporting aspect of it too, for, um, you know, if you're, if you're not from that community, I'm going to say it, if you're white or you're from the lower 48 and you come into the state and you're reporting on it, there's a cultural sensitivity there that um, is often isn't shared. And so there are a lot of times when reporting on big issues, sexual abuse, violence, things like that, there can be sort of a disconnect in there. And a lot of that can come over in the reporting. And there's a, a recent article that came out about an Eek woman who was killed in, in Anchorage. And there were some details in that story that reading it from an indigenous perspective, I would have never put some of that information in there. Um, you're sort of dragging the victim back through a lot of dirt and mud and, and filth that probably didn't need to be in that story. I mean, it was a, it was a case about uh, highlighting the entire wrong issues for something that had happened. Yeah. Right. And uh, that's something in which Oh, it, it, ahead, it actually Emily. gets to a good point about, um, you know, what's going on here at AFN. You know, if you look at um, the number of resolutions that have been put forward um, as drafts under health, safety and welfare, 40% of those resolutions address public safety and issues of ab abuse and, and these kinds of violent crimes in rural Alaska in some way. Um, and that is also the conversation that we're hearing in caucus rooms, too, is that, you know, what it's going to take is dollars on the ground um, to be able to address these issues. Um, and and you are seeing like a, like a big effort to really hammer home to people who maybe are either uh, non-native or not familiar with um, the reality of what's happening in rural Alaska that like this is what's happening, this is what's having the deepest effects in these communities and this is what people are getting fired up about. And I think there's some there's some creative solutions coming out of rural Alaska. I talked with Acha Kashmirov from Katsubu. She's originally from Mnemonic. Uh, she's a longtime public safety expert. She worked in juvenile justice for 20 plus years. She was a VPSO in Mnemonic for a while. And now she was recently named in March as the public safety officer in the Northwest Arctic Borough. And so for her, and she's an amazing woman, very bright, bubbly personality, and she was so happy to share with some uh, potential solutions that she's looking at to sort of change that perspective on um, public safety in Alaska. And that's sort of looking at the community and sort of trying to help those VPSOs, those village public safety officers, have some downtime and some time that they can step away from the job a little bit and decompress because you're seeing a lot of behavioral health come out of that. But we have a clip about Acha's goals that uh, she has for her VPSOs. Let's, let's turn to those. Uh, I, want, I want to hear that. 
what we need to do is to go back to how we used to police ourselves, but enhance it in a way that's going to be modern for today's use. And the other thing we need to do, once we get some people hired into the positions of our village public safety officers or village police officers, is to set up a support system for them. You hired a village police officer or public safety officer, and you use the people within the community to support them to be be able to release some of their frustrations, be able to go to a place where they could have a safe place to just be themselves and normal, whatever normal is, mm -hmm. and then not be in the mode of law enforcement all the time. You know, that reminds me of a comment uh, during day one's afternoon session uh, when they were talking public safety. Uh, a community member uh, came up to the microphone and said, when uh, law enforcement comes to follow up on wh whichever incident is happening, uh, talk to the entire village. That's the opportunity mm -hmm. to gather information, not just the person who's experiencing something yeah. because they may not be in a place to talk about it or uh, just unable to. Uh, and so I, I find that very hard. Yeah, and I, I really liked my conversation with Acha because she comes from a, from a VPSO standpoint. She told me a story about one time she had to go arrest her auntie who was illegally importing booze into the, the village, and then they had to go before her other auntie who was the magistrate. So in rural Alaska, you really see this very tight-knit community who have to deal with each other in a way that they have to police each other, and that's that's to credit to Acha's point. And I think it's really important for communities to be able to come here to AFN and have that dialogue because we look at different communities, different regions as monoliths that, you know, they're not sharing the same problems that everybody else is. But if you look at rural Alaska, a lot of those problems are getting shared. Um, and we have another area, we were talking to the Association for Village Council Presidents, uh, or sorry, Village Council Presidents. Yes, yeah, okay. <laughs> I've got so many acronyms in my head right now that it's hard to keep them um, straight. But Welcome we talked to with rural Alaska. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but I talked to Martha Whitman Kasich about some. I did not actually. Uh, Krista Schellenberger, our collaboration partner from KYUK, got to talk to Martha about some of the things that they're looking for and trying to get the right applicants, the quali qualified applicants, to apply for those VPSO jobs. We're very, very culturally rich, and we have a very strong people that just don't have the resources um, to provide basic public safety for themselves. We just don't have enough qualified applicants. We need qualified applicants to place people, and we want those applicants to be from our communities to serve their people. In my opinion, it is one of the most important factors because having a VPSO from the community, they understand the people who live there, they know them, um, they know the challenges of the community, they know the dynamics of the community, um, they might have a better sense of who are the troublemakers or who have resources to get help and who don't, troublemakers or who have resources to get help and who don't. So again, I mean, you're just highlighting the importance of having uh, the native perspective in whichever avenue that discussion is being had is so important. Uh, and whether it's being reported on, whether it's law enforcement stepping in, 
having that native perspective and the local perspective is going to be what's most paramount. Well, and that's part of the conversation that we are also hearing a lot more of. Um, last year on the agenda, um, there was a, a resolution about um, uh, law enforcement receiving culturally sensitive uh, cultural sensitivity training for, for when they are spending time in villages and they are responding to um, issues that arise in the villages. And, and that idea of modernizing the method. Um, you know, there's another um, resolution this year um, that talks about um, amending grant applications from the Department of Justice to reflect an Alaskan reality. And, um, and it really talks about the unique nature of Alaska's tribal government structure um, and, you know, what tribal consortiums are um, and better understanding things like the high cost of living and the lifestyle in rural Alaska so that these issues can be more thoroughly addressed. Yeah, and I think it's, uh, you know, it's to the point, for we can get back to today, where we talk a little bit about that communication between tribal um, organizations, village corporations, native corporations, and having that dialogue with state and federal policymakers. Uh, and so, that I mean, that's a big part of what this convention is, is it is talking about uh, different issues between different regions, different peoples, and elevating those conversations to state polit politics and Juno, and also on the federal level in Washington, D.C. Uh, and so we had a, a panel about the uh, education and working towards trying to build uh, a better education system. And at the root of all of this is sort of like trying to allow Alaska Native people to have sovereignty in a lot of the issues that they're having. And one of those issues uh, is came up Yes, uh, yesterday, day one of uh, Governor Mike Dunleavy, when he addressed the the, the delegates, talked about introducing a measure uh, into the legislation next session that would formally recognize tribal authority over educating their members. So allowing tribes again to have that authority to direct their own education programs, to direct their own health programs, things of this nature, giving that sovereignty back to Alaska Natives. Percy Schellenberger from KYUK managed to get a hold of Tiffany Zakowski earlier about the, uh, the the work that she wants to see happen at the state level on tribal compacting. Speaking for myself as a legislator, I will take the governor up on his commitment to working with tribes to do tribal compacting in the area of education. I, you know, as I think it's awesome and a step in the right direction to talk about expanding the role of tribal compacting within the state of Alaska. But I think it's really important that it's not just cost shifting and it's not just putting the burden of providing state services onto communities or tribes or nonprofits. Um, because as we've seen with the Tribal Child Welfare Compact, there are resources that need to be infused within these agreements. So the state of Alaska needs to provide the resources for the tribal co-signers um, co to be able to actually implement the work. And you, you just heard Tiffany Zakowski essentially picking up the gauntlet that Dunleavy put down at the, his address to the delegates yesterday about that, that legislation to push forward tribal compacting through education. And, you know, 
Tiffany's on her second year, I believe, in the, in the state legislature. It's first year with the, the tribal committee that she's chair of. And so she's really at the forefront of being able to help see a lot of these measures move from Alaska Native communities into state politics. And that's one of the beauties of AFN and why we're here, uh, gathered here. We're grateful for you joining in and listening to us and uh, the coverage of AFN. On day two, uh, the morning session, there were several uh, panel speakers uh, talking about investing in our future, protecting our future, uh, all geared towards the future. Uh, in the first section, they were talking about the importance of uh, the state's responsibility for public education and infusing Alaskan native perspective into that. Uh, and then also in protecting our future, the importance of the responsibility of the state for public health. And then uh, the public welfare, uh, working with uh, uh, native corporations to ensuring and working with the state on that. Uh, and one of the interesting aspects of that was uh, as soon as these panel discussions were finishing up is when it was pointed out that former Governor Bill Walker was instrumental in uh, bringing these panels together and having this discussion. And what was even more interesting was uh, the juxtaposition of the introductions or mm -hmm. the recognition of our former state governor and our current state governor uh, from yesterday. Yesterday when Governor Dunleavy was introduced, uh, there was silence was uh, for quiet, the most yeah. part. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, like <coughs> yesterday, uh, Governor Dunleavy gave his his comments and his prepared, you know, statement, and then left town. Governor Walker is here today, and he's walking around, holding and kissing babies and taking selfies with people. It's it's a very different feeling. For he sure. was very warmly received here. As soon as it was pointed out, uh, and where he was seated, in this in the bleachers, he was seated up in the bleachers, not anywhere near the spotlight. He was pointed out and the place went wild. Uh, it was very well welcomed. And so uh, folks, it's just an amazing, uh, fun AFN. Thanks for joining us.